Hands up if you have seen Joseph and the amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, either in the Opera House, West End, Church Hall, school stage, anywhere else at all. Hands up. Okay. As a result of uh, Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice's musical stage show, which was first presented as a 15-minute pop cantata, no idea what that is, at a school in London in 1968. As a result of that, uh, the story of Joseph, Joseph, or at least a particular version of the story of Joseph, is, is really quite well known. And I know that there are some here this morning, and I'm, I'm not going to look anywhere in particular, who, with very little encouragement, could easily and quite happily break into song, Any Dream Will Do, Close Every Door, or The Benjamin Calypso. Apparently, this musical is still being performed in literally hundreds of schools each year. And the popularity of that show is apparently one of the reasons why the name Joseph still features amongst the top ten names for boys in the UK and the US. This morning at Windsor, we're going to begin a new series called Living the Dream, based on the life of Joseph. And for the next seven weeks, we're going to walk our way through his story as it's recorded for us in the Book of Beginnings the book of Genesis. It starts in chapter 37. We're going to work our way or walk our way up to chapter 45, which is not quite the end, uh, but we may pick it up again in 2011. So if you have a Bible, can I invite you to turn to Genesis 37? There should be Bibles in the pews, and it's on page 41. And it's in this chapter that we meet the dreamer. Although if you just have a look at the text there, you will see that the story starts with Jacob. Joseph's dad. And verse 2 actually says, this is the account of Jacob. But then what follows is actually the account of Joseph. Because although Jacob does appear in chapter 37, he then disappears until chapter 46. So whose account is this? Jacob's or Joseph's? Now before we... uh, Read the text. Let me give you a couple of reasons for looking at this story, if we need a reason. I wonder how many of you are here this morning and you feel up against it at the minute, for whatever reason. You're struggling with something or some things. You're facing adversity of one kind or another. I'll guarantee in a congregation this size, Some are, either on a personal level, something's going on in your world and you're struggling with it, or else on some other level. And if you are a Christian, then hanging on to God and hanging on to your faith in the midst of what you're going through is not easy. And there's some of you here this morning, you just feel a bit stretched. Well, the story of Joseph is for you because... It's a story about living faithfully in the face of adversity. And in the first half of the story, the adversity is personal for Joseph. It involves family tension. It involves betrayal. It involves being wrongly accused for something he didn't do. It involves finding himself in a place he never deserved to be in. And later on in his story, the adversity moves from personal to social. Broadens. And in the midst of adversity... Joseph wrestles with the issues of money, sex, and power. 
issues that the church and Christian disciples still face, issues that have always represented a kind of unholy trinity. And it's why some Christians have taken vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. This is one of these stories that is timeless. And if you're here this morning and you find yourself dealing with adversity, dealing and wrestling with issues, these and others, but still trying to remain connected to your God, then this story and individual moments in it, I think, will be incredibly helpful and encouraging to you. The second general or broad reason for looking at Joseph is because this story forces us or it enables us to consider the challenges of and the need for forgiveness and reconciliation. Two things that don't come easy, never actually come easy. When someone or some people hurt you or sin against you, then it's really hard to forgive. We know in a sense we should, certainly those of us who claim to live in God and therefore walk as Christ walked, we know we should forgive, even when we've been sinned against. And yet it's really hard to do it. And there's maybe some of us here this morning and we haven't let go. And we haven't forgiven certain people who have hurt us. And because we live in a culture of blame, where grudges are held and bitterness is nursed and relational breakdowns are reality, Any story, any story that takes us on a journey of true forgiveness and reconciliation is surely worth pursuing. So if forgiveness is a live issue for you at the moment, then this story may offer hope. There is a third reason why I wanted to look at this story, but we'll come to that in a moment. Let's actually read the text or read the story or the opening episode in the story. So as we usually do here at Windsor, although it's a long chapter, I hope that's okay, we're going to stand for the public reading of God's word. Jacob lived in the land where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan. And this is the account of Jacob's family line. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Billa and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made him a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him, and they could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of corn out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and of what he said. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I've had another dream. And this time the sun and the moon and the 11 stars, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. Now his brothers had gone to graze their father's flocks near Shechem, and Israel said to Joseph, As you know, your brothers are grazing the flocks near Shechem. Come, I'm going to send you to them. Very well, he replied. So he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks, and bring word back to me. And then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. 
When Joseph arrived to check him, a man found him wandering around the fields and asked him, What are you looking for? He replied, I'm looking for my brothers. Can you tell me where they are grazing their flocks? They have moved on from here, the man answered. I heard them say, Let's go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes the dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. When Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing, and they took him and they threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. And as they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay a hand on him. After all, he is our brother. He is our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and he said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat, dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornamented robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, it is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes put on sackcloth and mourned for his own son for many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in mourning will I go down to the grave to my son. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Grab a seat. Now, one of the striking things and I know it was a long reading and it's warm in here Uh, one of the striking things and I don't know if you picked up on this about those 36 verses is there's no mention of God no mention of the Lord Joseph's story begins and God appears to be absent and if you contrast that with our recent series Journey into the Unknown where we travelled with uh, Abraham from Genesis 12 right through to Genesis 22. From the word go, the opening verse of Genesis 12 says, the Lord had said to Abraham. In Joseph's story, from Genesis 37 right actually until Genesis 50, God is only said to speak or act directly once. That's in chapter 46. In Abraham's story, God's constantly speaking. He keeps appearing. And for me, here's the third reason for looking at this story. You see, for many Christian believers, dramatic experiences of the presence of God are the precious exception rather than the rule. God mostly acts in hidden ways behind the scenes. I don't know about you, but 
Sometimes it seems, and I stress seems, that people are far more intimately involved and tangibly present, or God is far more intimately involved and tangibly present in the lives of others. People talk about God saying this to them and directly leading them here or redirecting them there. Whereas for me, hearing the voice of God and sensing his presence is not the norm. In fact, it's far from it. But that is exactly why Joseph's story is one that I love. It's one that has got so much value and importance for today because God may not be, in a sense, center stage in Joseph's life like he appeared in Abraham's, but God is clearly at work. His hand may appear to be hidden and his voice is usually only heard off stage. But God is present and God is there and God is involved and God is in control and God is working out his purposes. And as ever, it's often only in retrospect that as you look back on your life that you then go, yeah, God was at work there. And someone reflecting on these chapters writes that the absent presence of God is characteristic of the whole narrative. And so if sometimes, or maybe a lot of the time, you feel or you sense God is not here, tangibly here, you go through days, weeks, months maybe, without really feeling the presence of God, then take heart. Because based on the story of Joseph, you could say, and here's a phrase that I would encourage you to take away, discuss around the dinner table, discuss it in your fellowship groups this week. The life of faith mostly involves trust in a presence of God, which is elusive. And as I say, that's why I love this story and why I'm convinced it's a story that's worth revisiting time and time again. So let's just get into the drama. This is a chapter that splits into two scenes. And the first scene runs from verse 1 to verse 12. If you do have a Bible, if you could have it open, it would be really helpful as we go through this. But Joseph is is 17 when we meet him. And he's working alongside his brothers. But the first thing that Joseph does is he badmouths his brothers. The text doesn't tell us what he said. Nor does the text tell us, and this is interesting, whether what he said to his dad about his brothers was true. It only says that he brought his father a bad report about his male siblings. It's not a great introduction to this guy. And next we discover that Joseph, the 11th son, is the blue-eyed boy. Israel, that's dad, also called Jacob. Names are used interchangeably. He loves Joseph more than any of his other sons. Favoritism. And as we're about to see, it's flaunted, blatant favoritism. And the text says that the reason that Joseph was loved more was because he was born to Jacob in his old age. That's what it says in verse 3. But then what about Benjamin? Was Benjamin not younger than Joseph? So why did he not love him more? Seeing he was also born to Jacob in his old age. There must have been something more to it. And for those of you who know your Bibles, you'll know that back in Genesis 29 and 30, you discover why Joseph was actually loved more. It was because he was the firstborn of his favorite wife, Rachel. Joseph, Jacob actually had four wives. 
Now, the reason I say flaunted favoritism is because Jacob gives, or rather, Jacob makes, and that's possibly worse. It's one thing to buy someone something. It's another thing to actually, with your own hands, make it for them. And Jacob makes this ornamented coat, and we think of it as a coat of many colors, although I think uh, Ben's coat is probably more accurate. And the result of this, well, Joseph's brothers hate him. Hate him. And in light of what then happens, and in light of the cover-up and all the lies, what do you find yourself confronted here with as a dysfunctional family? And incidentally, loving one of your kids more than one of your other kids is never a great thing. And certainly any parent who spoils a child tends to be acting in his or her own interests, not those of the kid. Because the outcome for spoiled kids, and Joseph is a prime example, is misery and a hard time from your peers. And then comes the dreams, and they only serve, or certainly at this point of the story, they serve to intensify the hatred. And there are two dreams, but the theme's similar. In one, his brothers are pictured as bowing down to him, and in the other, his mum and his dad join his brothers in bowing down to him. And after hearing the first dream, his brothers are raging. But whenever he shares the second dream with his father, his father rebukes him. And at that point, the scene ends. Now, if you didn't know anything else about Joseph, and this is hard for us, I realize this. If you can imagine reading that first scene for the very first time, and you don't know the rest of the story, you wouldn't have a great impression of the dreamer. He's a telltale He's spoilt, his brothers hate him, and he thinks he is someone. And your hopes for Joseph at this point in the story, if you didn't know the rest, wouldn't be that high. And yet, because we do know the end from the beginning, we discover that this flawed, mildly annoying individual proves to be the recipient and the instrument of God's grace. And before we get into scene two, I want to say something about dreams which is dangerous. You see, the thing is, these particular dreams were from God. Because as we all know, one day, broadly speaking, they are fulfilled. Joseph had a gift. He had a supernatural gift. But as with all of God's gift, gifts, the real concern is with how we use them. Having a gift or gifts is one thing. The wisdom and the maturity to use it is another. Did Joseph handle his gift wisely? I'm not sure he did. Now I know some of you might think, but if he hadn't told his brothers about the dreams, then they wouldn't have done to him what they did, and the rest of the story would have been very different. But I think it's worth pointing out that even before Joseph had the dreams and shared the dreams, his brothers hated him. And I quote from verse 4, they could not speak a kind word to him. You see, I reckon long before Joseph saw sheaves and stars in his sleep, his brothers had it in for him. Joseph was gifted, but whether he was wise in how he handled his God-given gift, well, that's debatable. And having a gift or gifts, as I say, is one thing, but maybe it's the wise and the generous use of the gift that truly demonstrates the godliness of a believer. Having a gift is one thing. 
whether we use it wisely is another. Scene 2 begins just like scene 1. Have a look at verse 13. But there's one distinct difference. The brothers are out working again, but this time Joseph isn't with them shepherding, and I wonder why. And Jacob then asked Joseph to go on what is reckoned to be about a 60-mile, three-day hike to visit his brothers. It's a big ask. It's a really big ask. And so Joseph's response is slightly surprising given what we know about him to date. Now I'm not sure that the NIV does justice here. At the end of uh, verse 13 we read that Joseph says, if you've got an NIV, and I think most of the pew Bibles are NIVs, what it actually says here is that Joseph replies, very well, which kind of feels like it might have been said rather grudgingly through gritted teeth with a sort of less than a compliant attitude. Whereas, actually, this is one of those occasions where, as I understand it, the new King James, or the, or the Revised Standard Version, captures his response much more accurately. They read that Joseph replied to Jacob, Here I am, which, as we all know, tend to be the words of a faithful and a diligent servant. And in this response, Joseph comes across in slightly better light than he has appeared to date in the story. There is, it would seem, an obedient heart here. There's a willingness to do what is asked of him, despite the challenge and the uncertainty of how he will be received. And this is actually the seventh time in Genesis that that phrase has appeared. These are the words that Moses used whenever God calls him in that isolated desert place. These are the words that Samuel used whenever God called him and Samuel thought it was Eli. Here I am. These are the words Ananias used whenever God called him him to go and meet the notorious Saul of Tarsus. Here I am. They're words that speak of submission and surrender and availability. And they were great words at this point of the story for Joseph to speak. Not easy words because they meant having to leave the comfort of home. Having to leave the loving environment of a loving father and head off on a tough journey to spend time with people who hated your guts. And had it in for you. And Jacob's ask of his son, his beloved son, was big. Joseph's reply was even bigger. And I don't want to make too much of this. And I know sometimes uh, people who speak and sort of like take phrases and make massive jumps to apply them. So I don't want to make too much of this. But is there anything you're being asked to do at the minute that requires or deserves a similar response? And as it turns out, whenever... Joseph reached Shechem. His brothers had moved on. Thankfully, a stranger shows up and he tells him where they've gone. And in some ways, at this point in the story, you could have forgiven Joseph for just saying, well, Dad sent me to Shechem. I'm heading home. They're not here. He had done what his father had asked him to do. It's not his fault. It's not his problem. They'd gone. But again, we discover here in this part of the story another positive aspect of Joseph's character. He's got a persevering spirit, and so he heads for Dothan. In other words, he's willing to go the extra mile, or as it turns out, about the extra 20 miles. And as he approaches, his brothers see him in the distance. And again, those of you who are familiar with Scripture will know that this, this probably conjures up images of the prodigal returning and the father seeing him in the distance, only this time, rather than looks of love as they see this guy coming in the distance. And I think it's incredibly interesting that he's wearing his ornamented robe. If he's going to really hack his brothers off, this is what to wear. 
And they see him in the distance coming with his ornamented robe and it says they plot to kill him by throwing him down a cistern and telling everyone that ferocious animals have killed him. And Reuben, Reuben the oldest brother, speaks up and he intervenes and he hatches a rescue plan. And it kind of leaves you thinking, he's actually quite a good guy. Although again, for those of you who know your Bibles, Reuben is the brother who slept with his dad's wife. Grant that she wasn't his mum, she was Dan and Naphtali's mum but it was still well out of order. And Reuben's rescue plan doesn't quite work because after throwing Joseph into an empty cistern, Reuben seems to clear off. Why does Reuben clear off? No idea. And he clears off at what turns to be a crucial moment because while the rest of the brothers eat a meal, a group of Midianite merchants pass by and Judah, another brother, then he seems to have a crisis of conscience verses 26 and 27 and so rather than killing Joseph he suggests look why don't we sell him to passing traders which achieves the same end game the dreamer's gone but why not make money from his disposal and you could say that as opposed to being left in a pit in the middle of a desert to die a slow and horrible death that Judah's suggestion is slightly more humane but it's also possible that Judah's alternative plan was motivated more by the prospect of financial gain than by compassion for his younger brother. So none of the brothers, even those who it seemed, stood up from come out in any great light. And the deal's done and Joseph is sold for 20 pieces of silver, which is not the last time that someone's significance betrayed in a similar way. And Joseph disappears out of their sight, never to be seen again, if only... Because in 22 years' time, they will see him again. But that's rushing way ahead. And when Reuben gets back from wherever Reuben has been, he finds a completely empty cistern and he loses it. And he tears his clothes and he's then left with no choice but to join his brothers in killing a goat and covering Joseph's ornamental robe in blood and then heading home to lie through his teeth to his dad. And the layer upon layer of hatred and jealousy and deceit and anger and betrayal and greed and lies in this opening episode in Joseph's story is extraordinary. And when sin, left uncontrolled and unchecked and unchallenged, is given space and freedom to breed and breed, the pain and the devastation sin causes is outstanding. And if the brothers thought that by getting rid of the dreamer, life at home might become a little more bearable, they were so badly mistaken. Because everyone, including the sisters, they try to comfort dad. But he is so totally distressed that he says, do you know something, I'm going to go to my grave mourning. And dad's profound grief, constant grief, is going to be a constant reminder to the brothers of what they've done. And then Jacob disappears from the story until chapter 46. And the chapter then ends with one final comment. It tells us who, brought jo- or who bought Joseph from the Midianite merchants. And it might seem like an incidental detail when you read it. But despite never getting a mention, God, as I say, is working out his purposes. Because Potiphar, as we all know, is going to become a key player in Joseph's unfolding story. And as we finish this opening episode this morning, and what I've tried to do is just use the drama of the story to say certain things to us this morning. But as we finish, I've got eight questions for you for reflection. 
Uh, I did print these out and then left them in the printer uh, at home. This is really clever. So uh, what I'm really encouraging you is if, if you want to take these away, I know some of the, ho- the fellowship groups are going to be like picking up on the, jo- the Joseph story and engaging with it in the weeks to come. But here are eight questions to sort of get you started. And I would encourage you as an individual, as family, as people, whatever, to just think about take, grabbing these. Uh, if you Let me know. Give me your email afterwards. I'll send them to you. What aspect of the opening episode in Joseph's story struck you afresh this morning? And which of the three reasons for looking at the Joseph story intrigues you the most and why? And as you reflect back over your life or over the past year or longer, how have you seen the hidden hand of God at work in your life? What do you understand by the term the absent presence of God? And based on Genesis 37 alone, how would you describe Joseph and what aspect of his behavior surprised you the most? What characterizes the wise use of gifting? Do you think Joseph should have kept those dreams to himself? Given his brother's feelings, why do you think Joseph was so willing to say, here I am to his dad?